Well, good evening, Vanless. Um, <clears throat> appreciated that song. Um, All glory be to Christ, indeed. Um, and it's good to know that His rule and reign will never cease, even though we live in a, a crazy, unpredictable world. Um, anyway, for the for a couple weeks over the the Christmas break, Clay taught a series on the fear of man. Um, a lot of you were here for that. Some of you weren't. Um, but anyway, today I wanted to take you through a passage that talks about a, a, certain, asp- uh, a certain manifestation of the fear of man, um, a, an area where we're particularly tempted to fear man. Um, and that is to, uh, when we are, we're tempted to fear people when they, when they mistreat us for the sake of Christ, because we're Christians. Um, Sometimes we, sometimes, other times we fear people when we're really not in any serious danger. Often the bad things that we fear from people are actually not either as, as likely or not as important as we, we make them to be in our minds. Um, <clears throat> we might fear that people will dislike us or be unkind to us or those sorts of things. Um, but those things don't usually pose a serious threat to our life or our health. Um, but it's hard enough to to not fear people when we're in those sorts of situations. Um, but it's a whole lot harder when we actually are in real danger. And um, those sorts of situations can happen when people, when people want to mistreat us because we're, we're Christians. Um, I think for a, a long time, in our country at least, the thought of being mistreated for being a Christian seemed kind of like a... a uh, more of a theoretical or, or distant idea to most people, but I think that's starting to change these days, um, and especially within just some of the events that have happened within the last year. Um, the year 2020 has left a whole lot of people just gripped by fear, um, and I would guess a lot of that fear is the fear of man. Certainly there could be other things in there like the fear of COVID or circumstances, but I think the fear of man is a, a huge part of it. Um, people are afraid of the government. They're afraid of each other. Um, they're afraid of foreign countries. Um, they're afraid of just all, all sorts of things from, from other people. One of the things that is concerning to me personally is just the fact that our government and our culture seem to be on the move toward um, becoming less and less favorable to Christians and Christianity. I think in the, the future it's going to be much harder to be a Christian in, in our country if, if things keep going the way they're going to, uh, the, the way they're going at the moment. Um, uh, but anyway, there's a, there's a temptation to, to fear that all the things that have happened in, in 2020 are just going to keep getting worse, and, and they might. We don't know the future. But um, I'm thankful that God is the one that is totally in control of everything that's going on. Um, but from an earthly perspective, things don't look all that encouraging right now. I saw that um, saw yesterday that our new president signed, I think it was 17 executive orders, all on his first day in office. Um, I saw an article that said he's moving faster than any other modern president has in undoing the work of the, 
the last administration and implementing his own agenda. Um, I know that um, I know there's a huge temptation to fear that just to fear what the next the next four years are going to look like and um, just to be very apprehensive of that. Um, but like I say, we don't know the future. We know that God is in control. Um, but my point is just the fact that it's, it's tempting to to want to be to be fearful of of man right now in in our current culture and and society. Um, but the passages that we're going to be looking at today, um, in this passage, the Apostle Peter is going to to tell us how we can have a response to opposition that's filled with courage rather than fear. So if you want a title for tonight's sermon, I would call it um, Courage in Opposition. Um, I don't have a PowerPoint, as you can see, so I'll just have to listen carefully, but Courage in Opposition. Um, so this passage is going to help us stand firm, regardless of what may happen in our country or whatever may happen to us personally. Um, but not only that, beyond just allowing us to withstand whatever comes, Peter wants to show us a way that we can actually be useful to God for his glory and for the good of other people, no matter what the, the future circumstances may be. Um, so with that, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be focusing on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Peter's audience would have understood very well this sort of temptation to be fearful of man. Um, he was writing his letter to uh, a, a bunch of believers, several different groups of believers, probably scattered um, throughout the region that's now called, or the region that's now modern-day Turkey. Um, they would have been first-generation converts to Christianity, and they were apparently coming under heavy opposition from just people around them because of their faith. And Peter's letter was intended to encourage these new believers um, to persevere and to instruct them in, to how, to res- in how to respond to, to such challenging situations in a way that honors the Lord. So, in this passage, Peter is going to give us four ingredients for a godly response to opposition. <clears throat> in case you're taking notes, I'll repeat it. Four ingredients to a godly, for a godly response to opposition. So, the first ingredient that um, he's going to give us to help us to be able to face opposition in the right way is the recognition um, and I'll explain what I mean. I know it's a cumbersome way to say it. Um, but Peter says that if we're going to respond rightly to opposition, we need to recognize or believe, would be another way to say it, a specific truth, or actually two specific truths. These truths are foundational, so we have to start with them. And if we don't get these right, then we're going to misunderstand or just not even be able to apply all of all of what Peter is telling us to do here. So the first truth um, that we need to recognize, um, so it would be like a sub-point of, of uh, the recognition, is no one can do you ultimate harm if you are doing what is right. Peter says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
he's asking a rhetorical question, and the implied answer is that there's no one to harm them, the, his readers. And at first, at first reading, that sounds really strange. You're you're tempted to to just be um, to not know what he's saying there. Like, who who is there to harm you, really? Peter's not dumb or ignorant or um, insensitive. He he knows that there are plenty of of people, both for his. Um, there are plenty of people, um, both for his original readers and for us, who who really do, who really can do, a lot of physical harm to us. And um, he's not being naive or insensitive when he when he says this. He's pointing to a a greater reality, um, a greater reality than people doing us physical harm. Verse fourteen. Um, explains a little bit better what Peter's talking about. He's not saying that we'll never suffer at the hands of people. Instead, he's saying that even if we do suffer, um, we will not have, we will not be ultimately harmed, because God has promised to bless us in spite of suffering. Um, and I'll explain in a minute what the blessing means. But before we move on to talking about the blessing, um, I think it's worth pointing out the fact that. We're so prone to believe that people actually can harm us and to fear them because of it. That's why Peter mentions it here. Peter is telling us that we really have no reason to fear people. It sounds crazy, but it's true. So when we start to fear that people will harm us, we need to ask the question, what lies am I believing and what truths do I need to be, need to be believing to, to help me um, just counter that tendency to, to fear people. So I just thought of a couple common lies that we're tempted to believe. Um, you could add a lot more to the list, but here's just a couple. So the first lie would be, um, having someone hurt me is the worst thing that can happen to me. Or to say it another way, mistreatment by other people is so bad that I need to avoid it at all costs. And uh, the truth that we need to be believing to counteract this is that sometimes mistreatment by other people can actually be the, the very tool that God uses as our loving Father to discipline us and make us holy. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. That's talking about earthly fathers, and he's making a comparison. But he, talking about God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And in the context of Hebrews 12, the discipline that he's talking about is, is mistreatment by other people, and God uses that as a tool to make us more like him. The second lie that I thought of that we often tend to believe is that God must get me out of this trial because there's no way he can get me through it. And the truth that we need to be believing in this, to, to counteract this lie, is that we're eternally secure in Christ. No matter what happens to us in this life, yes, people can hurt us and even kill us in this life, but 
God can and will take care of us, and even if that does happen. 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 10 and 11 say, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Another really helpful passage um, that talks about the same thing is uh, Romans eight thirty one through 39. He says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him, give him, give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it not God? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long, and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how Peter can say that there is no one to harm us. It's because God has promised that he will always take care of us, even if he does allow us to go through unbelievably hard trials. And this brings us to the second truth that we need to recognize, which is blessing is promised in spite of earthly suffering. Blessing is promised in spite of earthly suffering. That's in verse 14a. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. God has promised to bless those who endure suffering for him. He will. Uh, we can rest secure in his promises. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this blessing? Well, one blessing that God promises is the glorious privilege of worshiping, of, of fellowshipping with Christ, first in his suffering and then in his glory. As we already read in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter expands on what's said here um, in uh, 1 Peter 4, 12-14. Beloved, do not be su- surprised at the fiery tri- trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Although we don't desire suffering, if we do end up being called to suffer for the sake of Christ, 
we can rest assured that since Christ suffered for us, as we suffer for him, we get to fellowship with him in a deeper way than we could otherwise. Although our sufferings never save us or add anything to what Christ did for us, they do help us see in a deeper way just what Christ went through for us, and we're able to fellowship with him in that. Suffering should cause us to grow in our gratitude to God um, and our reliance on him to sustain us through the difficulty. And in the end, we will get another blessing. We will get to fellowship with Christ, this time not in his suffering, but in his glory for all eternity. We will share with, with Christ the immeasurable inheritance that, is, that he has as he has given dominion over the entire universe. Most of all, though, we will be with him in, in unbroken, unhindered fellowship that will infinitely surpass even the, the best and closest fellowship that we could ever have here on earth. So, just to summarize where we've been so far, the, the recognition, there are two things that we need to recognize. First one is that no one can do us ultimate harm if we're doing what is right. And the second one is blessing is promised in spite of earthly suffering. <coughs> Now we come to the second ingredient for a godly response to opposition, which is the reverence. I know that's a little clunky. Um, what do I mean by reverence? Well, you could call it fear. Um, Peter's telling us that we need to replace the sinful fear of man with a proper fear of God. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. This command to fear God instead of fearing man is built upon the foundation of the promises of God and the realization that, that we just talked about, that no one can really harm us if we are following him. That's how Peter can so easily tell us not to fear them. We shouldn't fear people because there is no reason to fear them. Instead of having sinful fear and terror of other people, we should have a righteous fear and reverence for God. As Clay has been teaching us lately in the, the uh, Fear of Man series, this godly fear comes from a right understanding of who God is and for what he's, he has done for us. And that is the remedy for sinful fear of man. This section of our passage is nearly a, a direct quote from Isaiah um, 8, 12 through 13. Um, and in that passage, God was telling Isaiah not to fear the, the kingdom of, not to, excuse me, not to fear when the, the kingdom of Judah was coming under attack by the allied kings of Israel and Syria. God said to Isaiah, something very similar to what Peter says here. He said, do not call all conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But in your hearts, but, but the Lord of hosts, you shall honor as holy. Let him, be, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So God is the only one worthy of our fear, and he's ultimately the one in control of the people that we are tempted to fear. Um, 
As Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, "Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell." And in our passage in 1 Peter, he's he's not telling us to to fear God in the way of as though we're we're coming under his judgment. Um, as believers, he's already promised us blessing, not wrath. But the fear that Peter wants us to to have of God is the one of, is one of reverent awe and worship of God um, for who He is and all that He's done for us. Some of your translations um, might say in verse fifteen something like "Sanctify the Lord in your hearts." Um, that's not a bad translation, but it can be a little bit confusing for an English speaker. Um, we uh, we tend to think of sanctification as something that God does to us not something that we do to God. Um, but both the, the Hebrew word that was used in the Isaiah passage um, and the Greek word here in our First Peter passage have the basic meaning of setting something apart. Um, and that means setting something apart as holy. And that would be the opposite of something being... For something to be holy is, is the opposite of something being common or profane. Um, so when God sets us apart, he's actually making us holy because we're not holy until he does that. But when we set God apart as holy, we don't make God holy because he already is. Instead, when we set God apart, we treat him as holy because he is. Another way to say it would be that we acknowledge God's holiness and treat him accordingly. Um, and that's the kind of fear that that Peter's talking about here. So, how should this kind of right fear cause us to respond? Well, it should um, it should cause us to to run to God for His protection and care and mercy. Um, Luke twelve four through seven says, "I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you." But I warn you, um, who, whom you shall fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says something you wouldn't expect. He says, are not many sparrows sold for two pennies? And, are not, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. I love how this passage highlights the fact that we do fear God, and that fear of God and trust in his love and care for us is, is where we go to, um, to find our, our peace and help us not to fear man. Um, Another thing that righteous fear of God does is it causes us to resist the temptation to retaliate when we are treated unjustly. And instead, just to trust in God's justice. Um, another passage in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we can learn to patiently endure suffering as we look to the perfect example of Christ. And like Christ, we can trust in God who vindicates us at the proper time. We don't need to retaliate or seek our own justice in in sinful ways um, from those who hurt us um, because God's justice is coming and we can rely on that. So we've talked about the recognition that we need to have, the recognition that nothing will ultimately... um, We don't need to to fear anything, um, the the fear of man. Um, And then we talked about the reverence that we need to have um, for God, both, um, both as a holy God and as a loving Father, as opposed to being sin. Uh, sinfully fearful of people. So next we're going to look at um, what we are practically supposed to do about it. Uh, so that brings us to the, fir- the, the third ingredient, which is readiness. Third ingredient, readiness. Um, he says, always being prepared or ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter says that we should live in a constant state of readiness. We are supposed to always be ready to tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. Now before I go into detail about what that means, um, I want to just clarify, try to clear up a little bit of misunderstanding that a lot of people have about this verse. Um, You might have heard um, people use this passage before in ways that that try to um, make a case that we, we need to know a bunch of logical arguments or scientific evidences to, to prove the existence of God or prove the truth of the, of the Bible um, when it says always being prepared to make a defense for everyone who asks you a hope of the reason that is uh, a reason for the hope that is within you. Um, a lot of classical apologists um, use this verse to say that we need to be educated enough to to debunk all the arguments that unbelievers raise when they um, try to disprove Christianity or raise objections against it. Um, But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Um, Though that's not necessarily a a bad thing to do, that's that's not Peter's point. Peter isn't saying that we need to be ready to prove the existence of God to people. He's telling us that we need to be ready to tell people about the hope that we have in Christ. I'm not saying that logical arguments or scientific evidences are of no value. Um, They can be edifying and encouraging to us as believers, um, but they don't have the the power to convert people um, in and of themselves because people, until they're saved, are dead in their trespasses and sin. Um, These evidences or logical arguments can strengthen and and encourage our faith. and I'm not even saying that they have absolutely no value for talking to unbelievers, but um, we just need to remember that the only thing that convert people is the gospel and the word of God. So um, just the point that I'm trying to make is that um, you don't necessarily have to know 
the, the rational or evidential arguments for God. And if you, don't, if you don't do that, if you don't know those things, aren't educated well in that, you're not going to be disobeying this verse. Um, but what you do have to do, and what this verse is telling us that we need to do, is we'd better be ready to tell people about the hope that we have in the gospel. So what Peter is actually saying here uh, when he says, always being prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. He says the reason that we can have um, a rock-solid hope that stabilizes and grounds us even in the hardest of circumstances is not in a bunch of um, intellectual um, philosophies or scientific evidences, but in the sure and totally reliable promises of God. So if we're going to be ready to tell people about our hope, we need to make sure that we know what biblical hope is. In the, bo- in the Bible, um, hope isn't just a, a strong desire for something to happen, but it's a confident trust that that thing actually will happen. So what's the thing that is going to happen that, that Peter tells us we need to be ready to tell people about that we're, that we're hoping in? Um, Peter doesn't really tell us in this, in this passage what that hope is, um, but that's because he's already told us earlier in the letter. Um, look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. <clears throat> Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's that hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then it goes on in uh, verses 8 and 9 to say, although you have not seen him, talking about Christ, you love him. Although you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, um, this salvation and inheritance that he's talking about is the reason for our hope. So salvation in this, the context that Peter's using it, um, he's talking about final salvation or what some people call future salvation. So we, we have been saved at a moment in time in the past. We're being saved progressively as we're sanctified and made more holy. And we will be saved at the end when um, we're taken to, to be with the Lord. And uh, so that's the, the salvation that, that he's talking about. Um, the inheritance um, comes along with that final salvation. At the end of the age, Christ's glory will be revealed, and he will reign over the universe as the triumphant king. And we know that even if we go through horrible suffering for him in this life, we will one day share in his glory because we're united with him. Um, Peter says in 
chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, because Christ absorbed the penalty for sin. That was, um, sorry. Because Christ absorbed that the penalty for sin that was rightfully ours, someday we'll get to share um, in this inheritance that is rightfully his. Um, that's the inheritance that, that Peter's talking about in, in verse 4 of chapter 1. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's true hope. We need to fix our minds on this hope and um, believe um, that it is a reality. That's going to cause us to resist fearing man and it will allow us to live faithfully even if we have to endure suffering in this life. Um, If we do this, if we fix our eyes on that hope, people are going to notice and they're going to ask about our reason for hope. And when they do, um, we need to give them the gospel. We need to be ready to, to tell them why we have this hope and give a reason. Um, but there's more than just that. Beyond telling them about the hope, um, there's another thing we have to do, and that's the fourth ingredient to a right response to persecution or opposition. Um, and that's, I'm going to call it righteousness. Um, Again, it's a little cumbersome, but I'll explain what I mean. Um, Peter is telling us that um, we don't only need to tell people about the gospel, but that we also need to live a godly life that demonstrates the gospel for those people. He says, after he's told us to to give a, a reason for the hope within us, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, first Peter says that we need to um, be righteous in our speech. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, as we're giving an answer to people. Um, and the next, he says that we need to be righteous in the way that we live our lives. Says having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter's just gotten through telling us um, in the last ingredient, the third ingredient um, that we talked about, that we need to be ready to tell people about the hope that we have in the gospel. And now he's just telling us that we need to um, live a godly life that backs up what we say. Um, it's important to notice the order that. Peter puts these two things in. Telling people about the gospel is supposed to be the main thing. Um, You might have heard the the saying before, preach the gospel at all times, use words when necessary, but that's just not a true statement. Um, We can't preach the gospel in any other way than with our words. Um, So we need to make sure that we don't think that that all we have to do is live a godly life in front of people. We need to actually tell them. A godly life is an important part um, of what we do, but that alone um, isn't enough to convert someone. But that godly life is 
very important. The, the wonderful news is that God actually uses um, our godly and faithful witness in people's lives. Um, look, at what, look at what Peter has to say about this earlier in the, chat, in, in the letter. Um, in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, um, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he starts telling his readers to submit to authority for God's sake. And when he gets to talking to the wives um, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So my point is not to get wrapped around the axle about what it means to submit and what it doesn't mean, um, but just the point that I'm trying to make is just describing that uh, a godly life and the effect it can have on, on, on those around you. And in particular, in, in this particular example, um, the godly wife submitting to her husband even when it's really hard and he's probably not an easy man to submit to um, <clears throat> can actually be a tool that God uses to bring that man to faith in Christ. Um, that's not, not only true of the husband and wife relationship. Um, we need to live a godly life in all our relationships. And when we do this, um, we, uh, as we do this, we tell people about the gospel. Um, we just need to keep being faithful and keep believing God's promises that his word won't return void. So we keep telling people about the gospel, and we live a, a godly life that, that backs it up. And that's very compelling to people. Um, so, and we need to, to not forget that this whole passage in, is, is in the context of opposition for the sake of Christ. Um, so when people hate us and mistreat us because we're Christians... Um, even people clo close to us, like an ungodly husband in this example. Um, and when, instead of retaliating, we take it patiently and fix our hope firmly on God and live in a godly manner, that brings so much glory to God. And it's one of the most compelling things that we can do to win unbelievers to Christ. Um, the opposite of this right response to mistreatment we be one where we retaliate and um, just seek to fight fire with fire and where we harbor anger and resentment against whoever is mistreating us or one where we are obsessed with self-protection or motiva motivated by the fear of man. One other wrong response would be to slander and complain about those people behind their backs. Um, can you think of any examples um, that you've been tempted to respond in the, the wrong way um, within the last year or so? I know I can. Um, any national or state leaders' names come to mind when you think about that? Um, I'm not at all saying that we need to, um, that we shouldn't work to counter injustice whenever we um, encounter it. Um, yeah. 
And I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak truth about the really concerning things that are going on in our country and in our culture. Um, but as we do those things, we need to make sure that we do it in a way that is filled with hope, with a clear conscience in the fear of God and not of men. Um, we can do this because Peter says that there is no one who can really harm us if we do what is right. So um, that brings us back full circle. Um, we need to live with this godly reality, uh, with, with, with this, this reality in mind, that we are perfectly safe in God's will and that blessing is promised to us even if we do have to suffer for Christ. Armed with that truth, we can be enabled to fear God rather than man. Um, and we can be full of hope because of the inheritance that is promised at the end. And all of this will cause us to live the right way, even in spite of very hard circumstances. And when we live this way, because people are going to notice that your life is different, they're going to ask about. They're going to they're going to ask you about it and and want to know why. And we need to be ready to tell them about Jesus. Um, who is the reason for this unshakable hope that we have? Um, even in the midst of a a dark and scary world where fear and despair are pervasive. And when we do this, when we have this godly response to opposition, even if the opposition gets severe, um, this turns sinners to Christ and is compelling to them and um, brings so much glory to God. And so, let's just live in a way that um, has the right response to opposition, trusting in God, and uh, hoping in that final salvation. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you so much for your, your word and the promises and the, the hope that that brings us. And we thank you that there's no reason to fear man because man really can't hurt us in the ultimate sense. Thank you that um, we can fear you and, and have hope and, um, and tell people about it and, and live a, a godly life that, that backs it up and demonstrates the gospel to people and um, is winsome to them. And I just pray that you would work in us throughout this, this coming year and um, just whatever the future may hold. We don't know what that is. Uh, we don't know what your plans are, but we know that you're good and you're sovereign and everything is in your total control and within your perfect plan. And so we, we trust you. We hope in your promises. We thank you for the, the blessing and the inheritance that we know will be ours at the end.
and we just pray that you would give us strength to persevere no matter what happens and just be a, a light to this dark world that needs you so desperately. And I just pray that you would be glorified in that because it's your glory that is the, the most important thing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yeah.